Hello, I'm Todd Unger, and this is AMA Moving Medicine, a podcast from the American Medical Association. More than 2.4 million seniors in the United States identify as LGBTQ. And as the baby boomer generation ages, that number will only increase. Today, Dr. Magda Holberg, Chief Clinical Officer at Howard Brown Health in Chicago, and Jill Dispenza, Director of the HIV and STD Hub and Hotline Resources at the Center on Halstead in Chicago, discuss the healthcare needs of LGBTQ patients ages 65 and older, as well as how physicians can work better with this population. Let's join their conversation. Hello, everybody. This is Jill Dispenza. I am the director of HIV and STD Hub and Hotline Resources at the Center on Halstead, which is the Midwest largest LGBTQ community center. I started at Horizons, which was the Center on Halstead before. In 2003, um, became the director of the state's hotline, and then I developed and ran, launched our successful HIV testing and prevention program here at the center. And um, I've been here for 17 years, I believe. Great. Um, So I'm Dr. Magda Holberg. Um, I use she, her, they, them pronouns. Uh, I'm an internal medicine physician and geriatrician. So um, I have worked within the aging services for over 10 years, and I'm the chief clinical officer at Howard Brown Health. Howard Brown Health is a federally qualified community health center that focuses on the needs of LGBTQ uh, individuals in uh, Chicago. Excellent. Thank you very much. And the Center on Halstead and Howard Brown Health have worked together for decades in serving our populations together, and we've been integral to each other's um, successes and the successes of our community. We have some questions that we'd love to hit today um, about LGBTQ patients and aging. Dr. Holberg, um, aging presents a host of medical and social issues for everyone. Can you discuss some of the health issues more likely to affect LGBTQ seniors? What are some of the health and social disparities between LGBTQ seniors and cis straight seniors? Sure. Um, So some of this is really heavily influenced by the data that we have, or more accurately, the data we don't have. So because uh, many hospitals and health systems are not capturing uh, sexual orientation or gender identity data for their populations, uh, a lot of these health disparities we believe are there, but are very difficult to quantify uh, on a larger scale. So some of the data that we do have um, on health disparities is from uh, some national surveys that were conducted over the phone, but um, ultimately from those surveys and from community-based samples, so community centers uh, like the Center in Halstead um, do do study the population that they're serving uh, and some of their health concerns. So that's really where some of our data comes from. Um, we suspect that the health disparities are far more profound than what we are able to describe in data uh, currently. Uh, and I think that will emerge, you know, as we do better collection of sexual orientation and gender identity data. 
but um, really the health outcomes, there's higher, there are higher levels of disability, chronic disease, social isolation, and uh, violence and discrimination. So for LGBTQ older adults, those are all um, quite more, they're, they're more profound than in uh, their heterosexual counterparts. So um, some of the themes that we see are individuals being denied healthcare, um, having fear in accessing non-LGBTQ resources, uh, and in many cases, not identifying themselves as LGBTQ to their healthcare provider, which potentially can adversely affect their health because uh, they won't be getting some of those health, health needs met um, because of the non-disclosure. And then uh, really a higher rate of, of being not insured with health, uh, not having health insurance is also kind of known. Um, but that's what we do know in general about LGBTQ populations and health. Yes. I think that uh, some of the more profound uh, healthcare issues that might go undetected is that for older LGBTQ adults, um, there's a higher rate of people living with HIV in that population. So um, ultimately, non-disclosure might lead to not uh, performing HIV testing, for example, so identifying people later in, uh, in a later stage uh, after, uh, in a later stage than um, their younger counterparts, which we think does have an adverse effect. The biggest piece we think is really with um, transgender and gender non-conforming populations because the what they're not receiving in healthcare are things that they desperately need. So either can't um, disclose because of uh, fear of uh, refusal of healthcare, or in some cases even physical violence in the healthcare. It, while receiving healthcare, you know, has definitely been uh, documented. And so in those cases, they're not receiving gender affirming care. And additionally, the relationship that you have with your medical provider certainly influences how, how you, what you would share. So uh, there are probably pieces of information and really the effectiveness of medical advice that somebody might offer might have a very different uh, meaning if you feel like they can relate to your um, your life experience. Yeah, they, we have definitely at the center interacted with trans uh, clients and friends who are expressed that they are terrified of providers. So folks coming into a medical situation where they're already terrified. So many of our population um, who are often very educated, but they step back from um, careers because they need to be in a affirming space. So they don't have health insurance because maybe they became bartenders or drag queens. Um, we know of people who have left teaching to become a bartender because it was safer for them. And also folks sometimes don't go after a promotion, LGBTQ folks, because of the increased scrutiny when they want to be promoted. So they're paid less, which, and often don't have health insurance. Um, another question that we were interested in discussing was, are there any misconceptions about aging in the LGBTQ community 
that you encounter, whether from people outside the medical field, from cis folks, from heterosexual physicians, or from within the community itself? I can say that I, I, I think some of the misconceptions that we see are um, that the population of LGBTQ older adults is not resilient. So I do see that as a, I think, a false stereotype. So the population can actually be more resilient uh, than their younger counterparts. So in terms of, I I think people may underestimate um, some of the positive effects of uh, living as an LGBTQ person over your lifespan and what some of those things teach you. So I think that that's one thing uh, I would say is a misconception or might be a stereotype um, that I see. And so many of our seniors, our LGBTQ seniors, these folks were warriors when they were younger. They lived through HIV and fought um, on the streets, um, covered in Kaposi sarcoma, um, fought for LGBTQ rights. But the, the vulnerability of aging all of a sudden takes warriors and makes them afraid because they're so vulnerable at that point. Um, so it can seem like, oh, these folks aren't answering this because they, they're they afraid and they've been afraid. Um, I think often that's not the case. Um, they have not been afraid, but being seniors and then having to check boxes at a nursing home could potentially put them at, at massive risk. Um, so their tr- the treatment robs us of their um, their experience and their bravery. Yeah, I agree. And I think we, we think in the United States, we have this idea that we have progressed for LGBTQ liberation. And the reality is that those gains can be easily lost. And in many countries, um, if somebody does market on a form, um, you know, it can mean, it can mean physical violence. It can mean the loss of their job, you know, so that is still, that still happens in many societies. And so we're really not that far away from that. So while I think that we've made great strides, um, ultimately we're still, I think, vulnerable to being uh, singled out um, from a population and being handled differently uh, than someone else. You took care of the nation. It's time for the nation to take care of you. The AMA stood by America's physicians and patients during the pandemic, and we're not stopping there. We're fixing prior authorization, leading the charge on Medicare payment reform, supporting telehealth, fighting scope creep, and reducing physician burnout. It's time to rebuild, and the AMA is ready. To learn more about the AMA Recovery Plan for America's Physicians, go to ama-assn.org slash time to rebuild. I would say that what I, what I guess I observe, which I don't have any data to support, but what I observe is there's, um, there is a self-advocacy for medical care in older adults who are living with HIV who have been through you know, all of those years, because really the medical community failed, you know, initially pretty hardcore um, at, at being a place where people could 
have uh, to receive any care at all. So um, having gone through that experience, people get very good at self-advocacy and making sure that their needs get met. You know, so I see a lot of strength in people um, through the years, uh, a lot of a lot of self-acceptance as well um, in that population. We also see that often um, non-LGBTQ senior programs are often 65 and over. And we know in our community that sometimes a 40 year old can be struggling like a senior without work. They're underemployed, they're isolated. Um, they're having trouble navigating a complicated health system. They have chronic health issues at a younger age. They don't necessarily get the help that they need. But um, being flexible when it comes to what a senior is in LGBTQ folks because of that isolation. Yeah, we definitely see folks and we always have um, here. We have we had many years ago a senior program and we instead of seniors, we started our senior program at 45 because we saw that people who were a bit isolated, like uh, Dr. Holberg said, looking for friendships, which is hard to do sometimes when you're older. Um, they experienced what an older person might, where they, because of isolation, maybe they didn't get out of the house that much. And so they had some physical issues that developed or they fell um, and hurt themselves. And instead of getting better, they just didn't have the support to get better. Um, the isolation and um, oftentimes uh, LGBTQ folks, especially trans folks, have, have a, a lot of issues working, um, going to work, not being harassed at work, um, not being driven out of work. And so they, they may not have that support system, even what little might be there at work, they're not experiencing it. Um, they are struggling with health systems because they're so afraid of the health system. So they, they haven't had a lifetime of care um, to keep themselves in better shape um, because they've avoided it for good reason. And even with all of our care and concern and love and knowledge, um, it's still a, a difficult to fight a lifetime of discrimination for folks. I think you see this all the time, Dr. Holberg, a misconception can be that LGBTQ folks don't have any support. Well, they really do often, but it's not its not a checkbox that fits nicely um, where it could be my roommate, my friend, my partner's ex. You know, it can be an, an interesting definition of family. Oh, we should talk a little bit about caregiving. I'm interested in LGBTQ caregiving because for several reasons, one of which is, you know, when you are a caregiver, your health outcome, there's health implications for that type of stress, but also that, you know, for whatever reason, LGBTQ identified individuals tend to be the ones in their family that get identified uh, to care for family of origin, older adults. So it's interesting because you're more likely to be named or left as the caregiver for older adults, and you're, must, you're less likely to receive caregiving when you grow older. So those are two kind of interesting issues. And I guess it's because sometimes families believe 
they see LGBTQ people, even if they are in a committed relationship or even married, they see them as single. <laughs> and so tendencies in families are that this, that, that, that individual will be doing kind of the majority of caregiving for the older adults in that family. So um, even in large families, we see this uh, in geriatric medicine, which is that there often kind of emerges one or two person, you know, people within that family that are doing most of the hands-on caregiving. So um, yeah, the other piece I think is there's not as much intergenerational support. So when you're receiving caregiving as an LGBTQ older adult, you're more likely to have somebody near your own age and they may have their own issues that they're dealing with. So, um, so you've seen it, I'm sure, where uh, older adults are caregiving for other older adults. And, you know, that looks really different, I think, than when you have an intergenerational caregiving um, scenario. But yeah, I think that many, many LGBTQ people have, you know, really wonderful families of choice that they've created over the years that are very strong, but uh, they tend to not be as intergenerational. So when you have everyone clustered at the same age, uh, that can present some, some issues with caregiving and that, that kind of structure. That's a really good point. Um, we see that a lot and it makes me think sometimes in senior housing, you know, where they only allow a certain age of person, you know, where potentially they're cutting out what might be a helpful younger caregiver because they're too young to live there. Um, that's really a good point. And also if, if somebody doesn't have caregiving, it puts them at uh, it compounds their risk factors for being taken advantage of, um, for somebody potentially taking their money because there isn't family or somebody who's who's looking out for that senior. And if they're hiring um, caregivers, it could put them at at uh, good risk, immense risk. And also the importance of maybe um, making sure, especially for this community, LGBTQ community, advanced directives. Um, to make sure they're very clear about who is family and who can visit and who is supposed to take care of what, um, which sometimes can be very challenging if you're isolated. But without those, um, it puts them at, at very much risk. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, like what we understand about LGBTQ older adults is that they're they're less likely to have a will. So they're less likely to have a will and less likely to have advanced directives. Uh, the general older adult population, which I think is kind of interesting. Um, but you can see how that could create some pretty major issues. So um, particularly if you're co-dwelling with someone, they pass away, they don't have a will, you know, it's, it, these things can snowball, you know, so we've certainly seen that as well, which is that the advanced directives and advanced planning for where those things can be impacted to the point where you have someone coming in who hasn't talked to the person for 20 years, who's then going to have to arrange for, you know, for a funeral for someone that they, they're estranged from, you know, and the family of choice who knows the person the best and probably understands what they would have wanted, you know, is it could potentially be distanced from those decisions that are, I think are really important. Um, and that can be a really hurtful experience. 
I'm Todd Unger, and this is AMA Moving Medicine, a podcast from the American Medical Association. You can also subscribe to other great AMA podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. For more American Medical Association events and other AMA member-only benefits, join the AMA at ama-assn.org slash join. Thank you for listening.